So like I said, uh, in this series, we've had the blessing of having every single elder come up here and share a little piece of their heart with you. And today we have the blessing of having Sergio speak on the art of meditation. So Sergio, come on up. Can you guys give a loud welcome? Oh, man. Um, I said this to the first service, and I really mean it. It is always such an honor to be in this room with you. Oftentimes, I'll sit in the back, and I'll just watch all of you, and I'm so grateful for every single one. I, I know a lot of you. I don't know everyone, and I want to get to know everybody, but it's just an honor to be here. It's just such, such a privilege. Now, if you are new here, welcome. I hope you enjoy uh, today and this time with my family. You can see I have a pretty large family here, um, full of people who just love the Lord and are just amazing human beings. As, uh, as Nathan said, we're in this art of being, which has been a series of us looking into different spiritual disciplines that the church has utilized to get closer to Jesus throughout the ages. And the interesting thing is, is that one of, one, of the, one of the big keys of this is that it's meant to transform us because we're in a constant state of transition. We never are still. And you've probably have heard people saying, oh, you know, that stubborn person will never change. That's not true. Stubborn people, what they'll do is that they'll just be in their echo chamber and they'll become even more stubborn right? And we know this, like we probably know people that are like very stubborn and all they do is watch the television programs or hear the news that they want to hear and it really roots them into where they were already to begin with. And, and that's how propaganda works really, right? It's effective because what they do, whoever they is, is they, they just bombard you with these messages and the more you hear them, the more that it fills your mind up, you start kind of acting like them. And as you act like them and really become like them, then you start advocating for them. Now, you're one of their, you know, their microphones. You're one of their mouthpieces. And, and like I said, it's effective because it, you know, it's effective and they do it because it works. Um, but a little bit less nefarious is like culture. Cultures work that way. We're all raised in different cultures, um, if, you know, whatever our, our family culture is. And from very little, we start hearing voices from the adults in our life, from siblings, from our, you know, our neighbors, whatever it is. But you're hearing these voices, and they slowly transform us until we start being able to navigate life in this culture because we've been, you know, hearing these voices. And then once we're really that person, we, we have become this, <clears throat> now we start advocating, especially as we become parents. And we start, and it's, it's an ongoing process. So we know then that... Becoming is something that we're taking something from outside. It comes inside of us. It fills us up. We become, and then we propagate that to later generations. And as I think about this idea, I'm reminded of a couple different voices in my life that were key to filling up my mind to the point that it helped me root myself in Jesus. And one of those voices came from... Uncle Ed. It's a gentleman in the white shirt there. And uh, I gave my life, or I should say, I committed my life to Christ in 1999. And immediately, Uncle Ed took me under his wing and started discipling me and a, a couple group of guys. Um, he was my Chinese uncle. I was his Mexican nephew. Um, 
And, uh, and as you can see, he has a lot of young people there. Um, five of those are his children. The one way on the left, his son-in-law, awesome guy. Uh, but you see them grown here. When I met Uncle Ed, all those young people were little, little kids. The youngest was about three. The oldest was, I think, like in eighth grade. And I just found interesting that he would spend so much time discipling me when he has five kids. Like, I have three kids and I'm drowning. Like, I don't have time for anything. And if you have kids, you probably know what I mean. But how did he find time with five kids? And by the way, they all turned out amazing. So it's like, what, what was his secret sauce there? He was also an engineer in a very demanding job, um, hardware engineer, making, you know, um, like integrated circuits for computers. Won't get into that. Uh, but it was very demanding. And like I said, it always blew me away. How did he have time to be dedicated to disciple me and a group of guys? And here's the thing. Our group wasn't the only one. He was like discipling like two or three different groups. On top of that, he was studying um, seminary classes because he was going to become a pastor. Where did he find the time? How did he do it? And how did he show me so much love? He would, I, I often said, like, in our group, I was like, I think he likes me the most. Because he, he would always be open for anything that I needed. If I would call him, hey, I need to talk to you. Yeah, let's talk. Can I meet up with you? Let's, let's figure it out. When are we going to meet? I'd meet with him, like, no less than once a week, but more likely it was like three times a week. I would just meet with him. And, and it was just beautiful. Um, but one of the things that he would do is that, during his lunch uh, breaks um, from work, he would run up this hill. Now, we lived in San Jose, and he would run up this hill on the Santa Cruz Mountains where he can, when he gets to the top, he could see San Jose and all the little cities down in the valley. And he would pray. As he's running up, he's praying, and when he'd get there, he'd pray over the city, and then he'd meditate there. And what meditation looked like was to mutter, like to, to recite scripture and then think of it intently. And it was on one of those runs that after he came and met with us, he said, hey, guys, I need you guys to do something. I need you to memorize Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 is the instruction manual for living a godly life. And I know what that meant at the time. But he told us, memorize this psalm and meditate on it. And so it's with that then that I'd like to share Psalm 1 with you. It was the first psalm that I committed to memory and... Actually, it was the first piece of scripture that I committed to memory. Uh, now, I am going to read it, like here, instead of reciting it, because I, uh, I memorized it in the NIV. All you cool people here use the ESV, so we'll read from the ESV. So let's, uh, let's go ahead. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up, open your phones, or you can follow on the screen. So here we go. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's the word of the Lord. Father God, I am so grateful for these words that have directed my life and directed the lives of so many people. And I pray that as we go through and look at your word intently, that the work of the Holy Spirit 
is, is moving amazingly and that we will just be transformed continually because you are worthy of, of everything that we have. In Jesus' name. For the purpose of, of our talk today, we're only going to really focus on the first four verses. The other five, you know, five and six, verse five and six, important, but I don't think they're necessarily germane necessarily to the, the discipline of meditation. They're kind of like, here's the reality, here's the outcomes. And so I want to really focus in on what we like, need to focus on, right? Which is like, how do, we, how do we become the people that are blessed? And so what we'll do is we'll start off with verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, blessed is the man <clears throat> who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I remember the first time I read that and I was trying to commit it to memory and I was like, man, I got to keep away from these three groups of people and how am I going to keep track of them? You know, like, I, you know, the wicked sounds really scary, so I'm definitely going to try to keep away from them. And the sinners, I, I know them because I was with them not too long ago, but now, you know, I'm trying to distance myself from them, but I know I can try to keep away from them. And then what's a, what's a scoffer? NIV calls it a mocker. And I'm like, I, I know what that is. It's people who make fun of you, that tear you down, that ridicule, that judge you, like, viciously. That's what a scoffer is. But on closer inspection and looking at, it's actually, it's the same group of people. It's the same group that is building up a culture of ungodliness. And it's a progression. Because you can see, it starts with walking. And as you're walking, you're listening. Hey, remember I think we talked about propaganda or culture, how it's built? You're walking and you're listening. And eventually, as you listen more, now you start kind of looking like them. You stand in their manner you really exemplify those messages that were being told to you. And eventually, you reach your destination and you sit down and you plant roots. And now you are a scoffer. Now, the interesting thing is that the scoffer is not actually seated. The scoffer now is the wicked person walking with that person, that next person. And now you're speaking into them this counsel of wickedness. It's this cycle. And that's... That's what it is. And, and here's the thing, right? I'm looking in this room full of people that love the Lord. So clearly none of us are here. But the reality also is, is that the church is made up of broken people that are at various stages of internal healing, of God sanctifying our hearts. And what is often happening is that some of those habits of the world, because the ultimate bad place to get at is to be that scoffer. Because now you planted yourself in, you're tearing people down with your words, with your counsel with your way of being. And that is that scoffer mentality still exists in our in churches, unfortunately. I've seen people in the church tear other people down in the church. Like being judgmental. Now we're called to judge, but judge for restoration. What are you doing something wrong? But I've seen it where it's meant to tear somebody down. It's meant to ridicule. And even worse, it's when you're ridiculing the church itself, how bad it's failing. How's it? instead of being the opposite of a scoffer, what would that be? It's an encourager. Somebody who comes to the church and just loves on people. And if, if you're struggling, hey, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to pray for you. If the church is making mistakes, going in and saying, hey, I've been praying about this. I want to bless this church. And I've seen that too. So I'm not saying that we're bad here. None of us here are bad. None of us here are bad. But 
but it's there. It's a reality. And we have to expect that that's there because we're made up of people. And like I said, the church is a hospital. We're all getting healed along the way. But if you want to know where you might be sitting and what you need to read, like weed out, uproot, ask yourself, am I an encourager or am I someone that enjoys tearing people down? Got to ask that to yourself. But then what do we do when we are trying to get healing while here, but then once we walk out these doors, we're getting bombarded by the ways of the world. And now we're hearing those messages of the world. What do we do? What's the answer? Verse 2 tells us that blessed is a man that delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, I'm going to make a quick pit stop because you can see I've highlighted in red two particular words. Because it's going to be important for us to agree on this definition and this understanding of these concepts. Because if I were to go on, and well, the first one we'll look at is meditates. If I went on Google and I said, show me meditation, what you will most likely find is Eastern meditation. Which many of you probably have seen pictures of like, you know, people that are Hindu or, or you know, a Buddhist or doing yoga where they sit cross-legged, they're in a certain posture, their eyes closed, and what they tell you is focus on your breathing and clear your mind. And that is the common idea of what meditation is. But that's not what meditation is for the church. That's not the kind of meditation that the Hebrews, the Israelites, were told to meditate on there in Psalm 1. Because the word that's used here for meditation, and by the way, there's two different words that are used in the Hebrew that describe this idea of meditation, but the one here is the word haga. And haga is actually a word that's used to describe something audible. It's a muttering. It actually says muttering or mumbling. And it's often attributed to animals. Like you would say if a lion is growling, you would say the lion is hagaing. I don't think they have an ING, by the way. I had that in myself. Um, it could be like a dove is cooing. A dove is doing haga. That's what it is. But it's an audible thing. It's a muttering. But then what you do is as you hear that word, you focus on it intently. And it makes sense because it's that juxtaposition from the wicked voices that we're hearing from the, you know, from the wicked person. Instead, we're hearing the audible this audible sound of God's word, and we focus on it intently. Think about it. And the point's not to move fast and hear it. It's to go slow and intently think of what those words are, what it means to you. Can you feel them in a narrative? Like Im imagine putting yourself in there. What are you tasting potentially if it's talking about eating? What are you, what are you smelling? What are you, what are you seeing? It's that intent, intent, focus as you hear the word, as you haga. So clear on that? You with me? Okay, that's haga, that's haga, meditate. The second one is law. And the problem with law, and you know, it's that we can conflate that to mean just the do's and the don'ts. The ceremonial laws that Moses gave uh, the Israelites after he had gone up to Mount Sinai, and the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, and that is the law. But the law is much more because the word that's used there is Torah. And for those that know, Torah is the word that's used for the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's Torah. So it, it's bigger than just what we are called to do. 
It's actually the story of God. It's the story of his faithfulness. It's the story of how he relates to us and how he wants to redeem us. As a matter of fact, the beauty of the Torah is built in into that Torah is God's constant covenant with humanity to rescue us. Jesus is like talked about in the Torah. God's ultimate plan, it's meant for us to look at God's faithfulness because God's covenant is not a one-way street. It's, he's not telling us, just do what I say. He's like, do what, you do your part and check out what I'm going to do. And he's faithful and he's good to us. He's, he has steadfast love, long-suffering patience for all our goofiness. Right? That is what law is there. The word that's used there is Torah. And what it says, it's to, to meditate on a day and night. But it also says that the person delights. And this is also why it convinces me that when we meditate on the Torah, it's not simply about what I have to do. Because let me tell you, I cannot keep the Torah. I have tried. I tried as I first became Christian that I, I was mixing up my whole idea of what salvation through grace means. I tried to follow God's laws and I failed miserable. I don't know how I can delight in that idea. But I could delight in his grace. I could delight in his faithfulness. And so when I think about that, it's reminding us of what God has done. And so there's this beautiful example in the Bible. It's like the first example, if you're reading from, you know, through the Torah, five first books, and it's that first example that we see of meditation or the call to meditation is in the book of Joshua which follows. And so we're going to go look at Joshua now, the first person that we see that is called to go and meditate on, on the law of the Lord. And so what we'll do is we're going to turn to Joshua chapter 1. Now before we do, quick context setting, okay? Context is important, I've been told. And so the, the Israelites have been roaming the wilderness for 40 years, really, really wanting to get into that promised land. And Moses has died. Their leader who took them out of Egypt, and, and Moses is gone now, and they're about to enter. God is saying, all right, you're going to go in. And he's talking to Joshua. And here's the funny thing is Joshua, I think, is scared. He's scared to lead the people into the promised land. And you might say, why would you think he's scared? Well, let's look at what the text says. And I'm going to give commentary. This is just my way of doing it. You know, I know that sometimes you're like, shut up, just read, but i got to give you commentary. So here we go. Joshua, chapter 1, starting at verse 6. It says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. You're going to hear it a second time. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Pay attention here. Remember Psalm 1. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Third time, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times God is telling them to be strong and courageous. What happened? 
Because what we know about Joshua is that actually he's pretty courageous. He was one of 12 spies who, when they went out to spy the promised land, came back and said, yeah, let's go in. And everybody else was afraid, right? And he, there's a lot of other stories, which I'm going to actually show you another one of, of Joshua. But all of a sudden, he's afraid. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I've ever found the reason why. But then I started thinking, it's like, maybe because Moses is to Joshua what Batman is to Robin. And if you are a nerd like me and you watch the Justice League, you always know that Robin was brave as long as Batman was there. Like if Batman's there, it's like, let's go. Let's, let's do this. Let's go beat up the bad guys. But if Batman was around, he was a coward. He was like, very uncertain of himself. That is, I think, what seems to be happening. Right? But, but even though God is telling him to be strong and courageous, God tells him this other beautiful thing about meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. And this is the cool part. God is telling Joshua, go and meditate on a book that you're in. Joshua is in that book. His story is written in that book. And the first time that we see Joshua in the Torah is in Exodus 17. And again, context setting, this is one of my favorite parts in the Exodus story. It's amazing. And you probably know it as soon as I start talking about you unless you've memorized this. But the Israelites are wandering out in that desert and then they get attacked by the Amalekites. And what Moses then does is he, he goes and he goes to Joshua and he says, hey, go gather up some men to go fight the Amalekites. That's the first time we see Joshua. Enter Joshua. Okay? We can go do a whole word study about the name of Joshua. Don't have time. But, but what happens is that Joshua then is told that I have to go fight. And oh, by the way, Moses is going to go up on this hill and he's going to take the staff up on the hill. And that stuff's important because remember, the staff is what Moses threw on the ground, became a snake. It's the staff that he used to do all these miracles. So there's something with this staff and Moses being used as a vessel for God's will to be accomplished. And so the, the battle ensues, and Moses goes up this hill, oversees the battlefield, and he, Moses is joined by his brother Aaron, the high priest, and this guy Hur. And Moses puts up his hands. I'm assuming he has a staff in his hands, and he's up. And as soon as he does that, Fight starts, and the, the Israelites are winning. But Moses is an old dude, right? And, and I don't even know if it matters that he's old, because I tried to hold your hands up for a long time this way. His hands started falling. And as soon as his, heart, his, his hands start falling, the Amalekites now start to win the battle. And so Aaron and Hur see this, and they bring this rock, and they have Moses sit down, and then they hold up his hands, and now he's able to keep his hands up. And as soon as that happens, the Israelites start winning. And they, he has his hands up all the way until they win. Israelites vanquish. And then this is where we pick up. This is God telling this to Moses. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book, in a, in a book, excuse me, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And here's the thing. God did it. He did. Uh, last I checked, there's no Amalekites walking around. They're gone. God did it. And it's almost as if God is telling Joshua, go remember the things I've done. Don't let your courage, your trust in me wane. Be strong and courageous. Remember what I've done. And he even told Moses, write it down and recite it in his ears. It's this constant, what are we constantly hearing? 
What is it that is transforming us inside? That's the important part. And as a matter of fact, Romans tells us to have our minds transformed. How are we going to do that? Hearing God's voice. In this case, the psalm tells us to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And to pick, paint this picture of what that looks like then, of being this amazing person who's blessed, it gives us this beautiful picture in verses 3, and we'll follow it with 4. And it's this, that the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And I have always loved this description of a blessed man. Anybody who knows me well knows that, like, I just love trees. So that's, if you like trees, we're buddies. Um, but I love trees, but this beautiful picture of this tree planted by the stream of water, and it's constantly being nourished. And it has fruit. It has sustenance. Other things can, can gather from it and be given life. And then it has these leaves that don't wither. So, like, living here, I went for the Bay Area where the weather was generally nice, and living out here for five years is like, ooh, that summer. Oof, it's tough. I will drive to the end of a parking lot. I don't care how far I have to walk if I get to park under a tree, right? I want that shade, and that's what this idea of this tree is. It gives shade for those hot, burning days to all living things. And, and, you know, here's the beautiful thing, like, right, like we're, like we're called in Scripture, hey, go bear fruit, right? But I'm going to say something scandalous. That's, that's not our goal. And that might sound weird for me to say that because, like, now it sounds like I'm contradicting Jesus. Like, Jesus said go bear fruit, and I'm like, no, but that's not the goal. To, to uh, give myself some room here, it's, it's the reality that the goal is, is to be the tree planted by the stream of water. The fruit the leaves that don't wither, that's the byproduct of being planted by the stream of water. Jesus, as a matter of fact, says it in a better way, I think, in the Gospel of John when he says, hey, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from you, you can't do nothing. You can't do anything. You can't bear fruit. You, can't, you have to be grafted into me. You have to be the branch that is getting its life, its nutrients from me. That's what this is. Be a tree planted by a stream of water. Because then the, the result is that you will have fruit. That thing that we're called to do, we will do it if we're planted by the stream of God's water. And that's just such a beautiful picture to me. And I think like that's what we all want. Who doesn't want to produce good fruit? Who doesn't want to be life-giving? Right? Especially if you know Jesus. But there's a first step, and that's to abide Abide, And that's what this whole series has been about. It's the ways that we learn to do things, to abide in him, to be fed by his goodness, his, his, his just unexplainable love. Now, I do want to address one part in verse 3 because this can be uh, sometimes a little confusing, and it's that last line. In all that he does, he prospers. Because uh, that idea of prosperity is a little bit a little bit weird and a little bit dangerous. And that's why we get like 
you know, prosperity gospels where people are promised that if they follow the Lord, then God's going to prosper them. And in people's mind, they start thinking about, oh, I'm going to be wealthy and I'm going to have an easy life. And it's like, hey, you know what? I have seen plenty of very wealthy people who are miserable. And on the other side, I've seen people who are struggling paycheck to paycheck who have this amazing serene peace going on inside of them. So that doesn't match that idea of prosperity. So prosperity has to be something that's greater than that. And one of the things is, as I was talking to my wonderful wife over here about this idea of prosperity, she, she said, yeah, you know, think about Paul. Like Paul was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was ridiculed. He was persecuted. Would we say that he wasn't prosperous? It's like, no, he was prosperous. So what is this idea of prosperity? What is it? And, and I think like he kind of answers it in Philippians 4.13, which is like if I say Philippians 4.13, 4, you call it memory. There's athletes that write it on their shoes. You know, they'll, they'll put in bumper stickers. And it's misconstrued because I think what people think is like, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they think it's like, oh, I'll be successful in whatever I do. That's not what it means. <laughs> What it means is that no matter what season in life you're in, whether it's good or bad, Paul says that he has found the secret to contentment, and that is that I can do all things. I can endure all things because he has prosperity. So if you want to call prosperity a state of mind, call it that. It's something that's deep within us. It's a, this is beautiful peace that no matter what comes our way, what calamity or blessing, that we have peace. And it's, I love the word shalom. It's, it's the, the Hebrew word for, for peace and wholeness. That's what that tree is. It's whole. It's beautiful. I love this image. And I think like if I told you, hey, I, I got shalom to sell you, you'd be like, sign me up. And so I'm going to say, so this is what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to meditate on the Lord's word day and night. And what I want to caution against is that meditation and meditating on God's word is not about knowledge. Sounds a little weird. Knowledge is a good thing. John Prey a few weeks back shared about the art of study. It is so valuable. Don't get me wrong. But meditating on God's word is different. It's, 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 a, uh, it's very similar, but it's different. Because study is edifying the mind in a way that, like, you can defend the faith, you can encourage other people. But meditation on God's word is something that is transformative inside. It's something that's deep. And one of the ways that we find this truth is when Paul is talking to the Ephesians, and he's talking to them about, like, how God's glorious riches are able to strengthen them. He, he says this, and then we'll pick up here in verse 17, where it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, sounds like a tree, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's that remembering that God is faithful, that meditating on the Torah that is, God does things first. 
He doesn't expect us to do things first. He does it first. He's the one that reached out to us first. He's the one that forgave us. He's the one who has went after us. He's the one who loved, I mean, Scripture literally says, we love him because he loved us first. That's that transformative part. That's that the power that surpasses knowledge, right? And so to give an example of, of really what this is about and how being transformed by the power and grace of God through his word and through his spirit is actually a thing of simplicity. I'm going to introduce you to my abuelita, my grandmother. And... Um, my grandmother, um, last time I saw her was 2010, and a lot of beautiful revelations came to me during that trip. I'd known some stuff, and I had a lot of memories of her when I was little. We, whenever we would go to Mexico to visit her, you know, it was for big chunks of time, a few months, a month, you know, and, uh, and I have these really beautiful, fond memories. But in 2010, my grandmother was now on a walker. Like she, you know, she just kind of put her around. Um, and I started hearing about her story, how when she was born, she was born in the mountains um, because the family was in hiding. There was some really nasty stuff happening. People were getting killed, and the family fled to the mountains. And so that was like the start of her life, like a refugee in her own country. And uh, Mexico, what it is, she never, she never went to school, never learned how to read. She was illiterate her whole life. Couldn't pick up a, a book to learn anything. Everything was through experience. And I, I remember talking to my mom. We were standing on these stairs in her house. And I was, I was talking to her. And we, we started talking a lot about my grandmother. And, uh, uh, and one of the things that I asked her is like, you know, it must have been great being like daughter to my, our you know, to my grandmother. And she's like, she was kind of rough when she was young. Not bad, not evil, but just regular person. And, and, I, and, and as she's telling me the story, I started thinking about her as a woman of sorrows because, you know, she was super poor. And then after all that bad stuff happened and Mexico started like allotting farmlands to families, our family got a small little plot. And there were some seasons when there was drought, so they didn't have food. My mom would tell me that they would eat tortillas for like months. That's all they can eat. If they got beans in there, great. If it was meat, it was like the world had flipped upside down. They, they couldn't, that was it. She'd tell me that if they ever got like a little piece of candy, they would slowly lick it because like they didn't have anything. They were poor, really poor. And on top of that, she had multiple miscarriages, lost her two, two of her first four babies at infancy very painful. Later in life, she, she ended up being a single mom because my grandfather took off and remarried, and she stayed faithful all her life. And I was like, man, this is, this is deep. This is... But thing, the reason I brought up to my mom, like, it must have been great, is because my memories of my grandmother was that she was so generous. Whenever, I remember as a little kid, we'd go walking um, to the market, and she would give me pesos, little coins, you know, um, and as we're walking by, if, she, if there was a beggar, she would give something to the beggar and then watch me do it. And I didn't know what that was about. I just knew that I was supposed to do it because she did it. And she would do that. She was just so generous. And 
you know, and, and, then, and then I'm like sitting there and in the conversation with my mom on that stairway, as we're talking about this, she says, yeah, you know, I'd asked her once, like, did you ever want to learn how to read? And she said, of course she did. She said she wanted to learn to read. And my mom said, like, what would you read? She's like, the Bible. He's like, okay, what else? He's like, no, the Bible. She wanted to read the Bible. And so what is a person who wants to read the Bible but is illiterate to do? Well, there was this other thing that my grandmother would do, and it's, as far as I can remember, she would always disappear in the morning because what she would do is she would go to the church. Now, she's Catholic, and if you're Catholic, there's Mass every day. And at Mass every day, the Scriptures are read, right? They'll read from the Old Testament, but then there's a part where they read from the Gospels. So my grandmother's scriptural hearing was mostly the Gospel. And she would go every day to get her daily bread. She would go there because there was no other way that she would hear the Word of God. Now, this is before the Internet. This is before, like, you can easily, like, put, you know, like, have somebody read it to you. There was no means. Only means was for her to go to the church every day so she can hear. And then what we'd also see, and my wife saw this, the reason I put this picture up here with her hands folded is because I'd often find her at the end of the morning breakfast and chores that she would do, sitting in the patio with her hands in that manner, and her looking off in some direction, and I could see her mouth muttering. And I saw her do that from when I was a kid, and I saw her, and when my wife went in 2010 with me, she was doing it still. And through conversations with family, it's like, oh, she, she's trying to remember, recite what she, she heard at church. She's sitting there reciting the gospel and trying her best to memorize it and meditating on it deeply. And that's when it, it came to light to me of how beautiful this experience that my grandmother had because when I think about her generosity, there was a thing that happened on that same trip when we were sitting in the, in the patio with the whole family and there was a knock at the door and my cousin went to open the door, my youngest cousin. She came back in and she said, hey, uh, Abuelita, somebody's at the door. So my grandmother got on her walker, went, worked her way to the door, then came back, back into the patio because that's where the kitchen was, grabbed like a little bag of like beans and rice and then put her back out. And I saw her, and I was like, oh, who was that? And he's like, oh, it's just somebody asking for food. I was like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah, your grandmother won't let anybody go empty-handed. If they, if they have a need, if they ask, she'll just give it to them. I'm like, but she doesn't have a lot. And you're like, yeah, I know. She'll give it away. And I remember thinking, it's like, how can somebody who lived in scarcity give up? Because I've heard that, like, there's people who've lived through, like, the depression stuff, that they become pack rats. And mind you, she was a little bit of pack rat when it came to, like, pictures and stuff like that. But, but she wasn't afraid to share. And then and I thought, well, maybe, maybe what's going on here is that she's learned to be empathetic to people in need. But then having talked to my mom, she's like, no. It's because she, she heard a sermon a long time ago. And she clung on to this. And it was when Jesus it was talking to his disciples, and he said, he's talking about welcoming the good and faithful servant. And he's like, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. And I was, when I was naked, you clothed me. And they said, Lord, when did we feed you? And when did we clothe you? And he's like, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And she took that for truth. Such that, man, did it in the first service. It's hard. Um, 
My mom, the way she described it is she said, when people ask, I always, I always ask, is that my Jesus in disguise? Someone who didn't have the ability to read, but was hungry for the word of God and meditated on it and was transformed. And that's all I'm asking for any of us, to be transformed in a way that surpasses our understanding. And it could be any of these disciplines that we have done. It could be any of them. And, and I'm not saying that you're not doing that. I, I, I know you are. I've seen the beauty in your lives. But as an encouragement to continue to do that, to meditate on his word, because just like Joshua, he was scared. And God encouraged him told him, remember what I've done. Remember what I've done. Let that be the thing that transforms our heart. Remember what I've done. And so we've been told that we have to give you a challenge, so I will. And whether you want to do this for a day or a week, a month, whatever it is, if you want to lean into this particular art of meditation, Meditate on this as long as you need to until it transforms your heart, until you start seeing it. So it's Deuteronomy 11, and it says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, there's a lot of parents in here. This applies to you. But if you're not a parent or your kids have gone off, be like Uncle Ed. Adopt, adopt someone. He adopted me. I'm rooted in Christ because someone adopted me and walked me through this. Love you guys. <laughs>